standard issue for all women. Hello, Hannah here and welcome to this week's Chops. Hope you're having a nice weekend. And I'm pleased to report that I'm here to make it a certain percentage better with this upcoming interview in which I speak to Shirley Holliman Kemp and Pepsi DeMac Crockett, better known as Pepsi and Shirley, who first became famous as Wham's backing singers and went on to have a successful pop career of their own. Still friends after all this time, they've written a shared biography called It's All in Black and White, Wham, Life and Friendship, which is out to buy on September the 30th. So later this week, if you're listening to this on the day it comes out. We had a terrific chat, despite the best efforts of my gardening neighbours and Pepsi's Wi-Fi, which is coming up now. One thing I wanted to add before you hear it is that this is actually the second week in a row I've ended up talking about being the child of an addict, which is how the timing on that has gone. I think it's an important topic and it's also important to show that there are a lot of us out there. If that also happens to be you and you'd like someone to talk to about it, you can get in touch with Nakoa on 0800 358 3456. Until next week. I want to start with a fun fact that I think I knew, I think I remember it, but I read it in your book. And that's that Margaret Thatcher reviewed your single Heartache when she appeared on classic kids TV show Saturday Superstore. And I don't know if there's a sentence that screams the 1980s more than that. We tend to look back now at the 1980s as kind of a negative time. And I was wondering if you two could tell me whether you think that we're being unfair to the 80s and it actually had a lot of good stuff in it as well. Being a young 20-year-old in the 80s, I would much prefer to have the 80s than I would have been of recent years, put it that way. And it made me really appreciate that, wow, we just lived to kind of play music, dance, go clubbing, great fashion, going out with huge groups of friends, and traveling the world and it nothing brought that back to home as much as obviously lockdown did yeah how lucky were we you know all that experience so the 80s i have got such amazing memories of part of the best time of my life pepsi the 80s was amazing (laughs) absolutely fantastic what freedom Freedom to be creative, freedom to wear whatever you like. Okay, politically, it was a real shag. But, you know, as far as we're concerned, you know, there was so much freedom to sort of discover. There was no boundaries. It was about being unique. Even the word organic and and all that kind of stuff wasn't even in in the vocabulary. It was more about, you know, let's just go out and do stuff. You know what I mean? So... For me, it was a fantastic time. Your book is full of some really fun and slightly off-kilter anecdotes that you admit yourself you didn't really appreciate the strangeness until you sat down to write this book. Pepsi, can we talk about you meeting Liza Minnelli, please? (laughs) (laughs) Which seemed mad. It was mad. The thing is with writing a book, you know, you want to make sure that it's as humorous and engaging as possible and for Shirley and I we were like you know what were those moments that stuck in our minds there were many moments but this moment was just like even at the time you don't realize how phenomenal it was you know for Shirley and I you know we're we're just like these two girls sitting in our dressing room you hear a knock on the door 
excuse me, can Liza Minnelli come and sit in with you before she goes to sit out yeah. with you? I mean, think about that. Liza Minnelli. Is it a joke? No, it's not a joke. <laughs> he rocks up and we're just looking at each other, like in the mirror, at each other, thinking there's Liza Minnelli sitting behind us. You know, that iconic voice, her energy, it's exactly what you'd imagine it to be. So we were just completely flawed. And then when she started to tell us, girls, have you warmed up? We never warmed up. <laughs> we just, our makeup on and just went on. We were just young, free, and happy to sort of go on stage without the warm-up. And she was like stretching and all the rest of it. And I just remember thinking, you know what? I really think I should stand up and get involved. And as I was just about to do that, there was a tap on the door and it was like, Miss Manelli, we've got your seat for you. And it was like, oh my, and we just sat back in our chair. Like, did that actually happen? <laughs> yes, it did. So but she did I'm a few like, high kicks. She did yeah. <laughs> High kicks, and we were about to sing, There's no business. <laughs> I was secretly hoping one of you had a Liza Minnelli impersonation in you, and you do, which is great. We're holding back, we're holding back. <laughs> you also, again, admit to you didn't quite realize how mad it was that you went to China. Wham was the first pop band to play from the West in China. From reading your book, not only did you not seem to know the magnitude of it, you didn't seem to have been particularly well sort of prepared for what a culture shock it would be. You write about it in the book, Pepsi. So, Shirley, I wonder if you could tell me what your impressions of being in China at that time were. Well, I was deeply, deeply affected by my trip to China. As you say, culture, we didn't get the information like people can look up. I'm going to China. I'll look it up. I'll yeah. Google it. There was none of that. And when you're actually in a band and you've been touring, you kind of get a bit like, oh, where are we going? Just get on a plane and you'll just be there, you know? You didn't kind of research where you went. You were getting on this aeroplane, booked into a hotel, and you do a show. So I just thought, oh, I'm going to China. It would be the same as anywhere else. Oh, my goodness, what a culture shock. Because, one, I had really white hair then, short white hair. And Pepsi and I were like, right, let's get out to the, we'd put our bags in a hotel. And we'd always say, let's go for a walk, see where we are. And we ended up in Tiananmen Square. Wow. And one looked the same in these Chairman Mao greens <laughs> and with this hat with the star on it. But I thought everyone would really stare at these Western girls because we were with a few people from the rest of the band. And no one had eye contact with us. And that was when I thought, I'm not comfortable where we are. This is the oddest experience I've ever had. And everyone had this kind of look on their face, an unopinionated look where they didn't look at you, they didn't smile. It was just odd, like robotic. And I just remember saying to Pepsi, I'm really uncomfortable here. I'm not, I felt really anxious. And then we were taken to a wet market. Well, I didn't even know what a wet market was. And Pepsi and I are walking around, and then Pepsi says, oh, no, oh, no, no. And I'm going, what, what's that? And she says, Shirley, I think there's a cat. Animals everywhere. And I was so, because I'm a big animal lover, I was so disturbed. I literally lived off strawberry milkshake the whole trip. <laughs> I couldn't eat. I was so affected. I 
Yeah, and and the other thing is, he actually started to look at look like the the Chinese in the Tiananmen Square. She just had this look on <laughs> like look on her face. The weirdest thing was that we were like, oh, I love these green hats with this with this red star on it, and we were walking around with these green hats with these like red skirts. <laughs> Little did we know we were like wearing like you know the, the flag of China on our heads. But you know, yeah. Yeah, you're right, because nowadays all that information could be at your fingertips, but then completely different world. We didn't know the meaning of the word organic, but we lived in an organic time where you're literally going somewhere and you're learning it, everything on the job. You'll experience it there and then. So for, for me, going to China, it made me really think about England and how much freedom, and it changed my opinion. And I know at the time, obviously... We were going through an awful financial crisis. I mean, I, we, I got caught up in all that as well. But I was still grateful because I thought, yeah, but I don't live in China and, I, and I'm not under that dictatorship and I'm not have those animals that were in that market. I can go to a supermarket and find food. So it, it just gave me so much more gratitude for, for coming back home to England. You both talk about your childhood in this book, including you, Pepsi, you talk about your dad's drinking. Now, I bring this up because my dad was an alcoholic. and Whenever I talk publicly about my dad's drinking, it has got easier, but that's not to say that it's easy. But I'm always glad that I've done it after I've done it. And I just so I just wondered how that process was for you. Well, I have to say, I felt that I could talk about it because I'd actually spoken to Shirley about it. It was something that brought us close together was the trauma of growing up for me with a a father who was an alcoholic. I find it easy to talk about because I know a lot of people go through it. I understand it a lot more, you know. It's a disease, you know. It's the way that some of us are made up. So, for example, my, my younger brother eventually stood up to my father, you read in the book, and told him not to stop being aggressive to my mother. He now works as a volunteer for alcohol and drug users. And he had an issue with, with drink as well. The part that's hard is trying to, to, to explain what stopped my father drinking or what made my father drink. Mm. I know a little bit of his background as far as like living in St. Lucia. He actually worked at the rum distilleries. He got sacked for drinking out of the rum barrels, would you believe? (laughs) So way back when, he's always been a drinker. He's always had that drinking. And as the years have gone by and I've sort of worked on myself and spoken to different members of my family he was overwhelmed being a father Mm. he was overwhelmed by having five kids he couldn't look after he wasn't earning enough money my mum wasn't working because she was at home looking after kids and so he used to drown his sorrows in drink and the thing is you know I actually think there are some of us that become addictive and there's some of us that don't my father was an addict he was addicted to drinking but he was a binge drinker he would go all week without drinking and then Friday he would just drink as much as he could I don't know if it was kind of the end of the week and he didn't want to be with his family or it was just a habit that he got into Now, being in St. Lucia, I have discovered that that's how a lot of men actually get on with their week. They're good all week. And at the end of the week, as long as they've got money in their pocket, they drink. 
And I think it's to sort of like not deal with certain things. Yeah. I think it's not to deal with certain responsibilities and become blinkered by your kids around you asking for school shoes or school uniform or mummy asking for food again, you know what I mean? And I think my father just could not cope with the responsibilities that he had. So he drowned his sorrows in drink. And when he stopped drinking, it was a revelation to all the family. And it was because he'd, he'd drunk, he'd gone on this big binge and then he stopped and his body just reacted. Yeah. And I, I remember asking us, I said, so daddy, what, why did, how come you stopped drinking? He said, God spoke to him. And I think he had a revelation. And then all of a sudden he stopped drinking. It was the most extraordinary thing. And now my brother is working in that area, working with ex-alcoholics that have been traumatized growing up. It's not just someone drinks and gets addicted. There is a reason why. Oh, good for him, because there is a cycle. There is definitely a cycle. So it's good for people who've been around drink to use that in a positive way. Put something good yeah, out into the I, world. I feel fortunate because I was able to see my dad without drink and he was a very gentle loving man he was the most fantastic drunk you know when he was drunk he danced he sang he spoke to people he gave away his money this all sounds very familiar very familiar yeah (laughs) i hope i'm not making you uncomfortable no no not at all i'm quite happy to talk about phenomenal he was an amazing man when he was drunk Mm. He wasn't great with his kids. He wasn't great with his wife. Or with his money, no doubt. His money, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Shirley, there's something quite personal that you talk about in the book that I I wanted to ask you about as well, because you make a very, very, very clear point very well, and it's very important. And I'd, I'd like to ask you to make it again here now, because I think it is important. And that's that doctors don't take women seriously when they report pain. And you had quite a long time getting endometriosis diagnosed and things should have been better for you. And the thing is, I still don't think they're that much better for women now. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I suffered horrendous period pains from the age of 14. And my mum didn't know what was wrong with me. Everyone used to think, oh, you must have a bug or something. I'm like, no, this is my period. To the point I'd pass out, I would be, you know, so ill I would have to go to bed for three days, but in excruciating pain. When I actually had a baby and I was like, had labour pains, I was like, this is like my period pain. It wasn't any different. It was the same thing. So I've been experiencing like torturous pain since I was 14. And my mum's doctor would come round and the doctors always seemed to be male in those days. And she would actually call the doctor to the house because I couldn't move. He would be like, oh, well, there's nothing wrong with her. Every woman goes through this every month. And, you know, you've just got to... Take these pain. He gave me these painkillers, which made me even worse. But for years, this went on, and my mum just didn't. And once again, it's that whole thing. You couldn't Google. Well, why do some mm. people have? There was nowhere to find that knowledge about your your health. And it wasn't until I was about twenty one, twenty two, I started earning some money, and I didn't even know there was private doctors, to be honest. And somehow, yeah, through working in the entertainment business, you hear, oh, you know, there's a private doctor. And I went to see this lady, and her name was Ursula, in a beautiful office. And I explained everything, and she said, oh, my goodness. The fact she put a name to it, I suddenly felt like I wasn't making it up. I wasn't being a baby. And she was a female doctor, so I just kind of fell in love with her. I felt like she was my saviour. 
well, we didn't cure the endometriosis, but just to know that you've been listened to, you're not going mad, there mm. is some name to it. And I kind of found that a lot. I mean, funny thing, when I was actually, one time I was having an examination, a gynecological examination, and the doctor said, do you mind if we let all the students in? And I was in Pepsi and Shirley at the point. And I went, no, no. And said, it wasn't what said, but you're you know, girl in your business, I'm sure. I was like, what the hell do you think I do for a living? <laughs> girl in your business. Yeah. Like, I was so insulted. You know, a girl in your business, I didn't think you would be shy. Because you get up to think. <laughs> so Let me Kimbo, here we go. <laughs> yeah. Like, if you're not happy with the doctor's advice or you're not happy with how you're being treated, go and find another doctor. And if you can't find anything, save up the money and pay for it and just get advice and then go back to your GP saying, well, this is what's happening to me. There must be treatment for endometriosis now. Well, the sad thing is, for especially young girls, the, the first thing they'll say to you is that we'll have to check, you know, you have to have a camera laparoscopy to see how bad it is. And then the bad news after that is you may not be able to have children because it affects your ovaries and your womb. It's all the lining of the womb. And so I was actually told I may find it hard to have children. So I immediately go back to Martin and say, we have to have children. He's like, what? I'm not ready. I'm in a band. I'm not, I'm going on too. I can't have children. But I was, my headspace was like, oh, this is going to stop me from having children. So the, the, the ultimate operation to have with endometriosis is um, hysterectomy. Oh my so no young girl wants to go through a hysterectomy, but there there are hormones they can put you on, but they're horrendous. I experienced all that, so um, it's not a very nice thing to experience. No, no. And I was witness to it, and you feel absolutely useless as a bystander. You're looking, thinking, "What can I do?" And there's nothing you can do other than soothe the brow and, and sort of help with cups of tea and stuff like that. Mm. But it's not, it's, it's an awful ailment to have, awful ailment to have. Yeah, and it kind of leads to my next question. So I'm going to stick with you, Shirley, which is, you know, we have a lot of conversations nowadays about how women can have it all or can they have it all or do they even want it all? And you say quite clearly in this book that you did have it all and you realised you didn't want it all. You wanted something different. That's a really bold move to make. And I wondered how easy that decision was and whether you think it might be easier for women now or whether you think it's actually might be harder for women now to make that decision. You know, what? I think it's such an individual thing. So for me to even categorise it for me, yeah, of course, it's harder for women, because if you've got a career and you want a child, how do you balance that? Do you say if you're with a partner or a husband, do you say, right, you give up your career and yeah, if I was in that situation, if I said to Martin, no, I'm earning more money and I want to work, keep working, you look after the baby. I do think that's doable. But for me, I'd experienced so much before I'd had the baby. And, you know, there's a great saying that success isn't a destination. And I realized that very quickly. Like you tour the world, you meet famous people, but that's all kind of in passing mm. who is the everyday person you're living with and I just wanted it made me all that it's like I'm saying about um you know lockdown it's kind of made me stay at home even more but when you go on tour and you're constantly in hotels and traveling you're like oh I really I craved having a home I craved putting the washing on 
buying a bunch of flowers, having my own bowl. There were just these things that your perspective changed because you've experienced everything. But what it really zones into is what's really important to you. And what I knew was important to me was I really wanted a baby. I really wanted a good marriage. I really wanted a good home. It wasn't about the money. It wasn't like if I give up my career, I'm going to lose a lot of money. That didn't even enter my head. And there were times later on when I go bankrupt, when I'm thinking, oh, why did I give up my career? I need the money. And, and, and I have been through some really hard financial times. And I did regret sometimes thinking I should have carried on working. But now in hindsight, I look at my two kids, they're workaholics. We have a really lovely family. We have a great relationship with our kids. I can only think how I chose and whatever I did was right for me at the time. But I don't think that's a general thing for everyone. We sort of crept into the rewards of fame then. And what I really like about the pair of you is you say that being down to worth is your superpower. I can actually see evidence of that. There's there's some moments in the book where you're talking about, you know, being on a huge tour and also washing your pants in the hotel sink. (laughs) Um, To see the least glamorous part of it. We still have, I think, more than ever, fame is this thing that people seek out. And it's easier than ever to be famous now. You can be famous from TikTok. You can be famous from YouTube. But I just wondered, what would you say to someone, a young person who was setting out on a path like you were when you were younger about what fame is and how to stay grounded because you both seem to have done that very well I think for Shirley and I I can say because it's some it's a conversation both of us have had I mean we've always believed in not fame but success success in having balance with everything that you do so I suppose the word is is balanced at the end of the day, you can pursue to be famous, but to be successful for me is two completely different things. To be at the top of your game, knowing that you've got a home to go to, that you have a partner, you have a family, friends that you can really be yourself with. You can go on holiday and enjoy it without thinking that you've got to be constantly on the phone, updating your social media or whatever. To me, that's successful. That's been really successful and really balanced. The pursuit of fame and nothing else means that something it becomes detrimental to everything else around you. Your focus is just that, which means everything else just falls away to the sides. The things that are truly, truly important when fame is no longer there because it's just a moment. You know, the thing is you can hit number one, but then you're just thinking of how am I going to get my next number Mm. one? Not how am I going to make a successful album. The two are kind of different. That's what I feel. So it's important as you're in your career to pursue always looking at the balance so that whatever happens, you're good. And the thing is with Shirley and I, we didn't actually realise we were kind of doing that because comfort came to us by us trying to maintain a sense of normality as much as we could because we can see the illusion in front of us because when that illusion is 
sort of fallen away, what are you left with? Yeah. So success is having having the grounding, having the balance, having people around you that you, you love and you trust that can support you in in all times. Great answer. I don't yeah. think fame meant what it used to mean anyway. As you say, it's so there's so many areas to be famous. I personally hate fame. I don't like it around me. I hate being recognised. I'm so uncomfortable with it. So I think you've got to be a type of person. It's like saying, you know, being one of those window cleaners who can go up a sky high rock build and not it not affect you. If you're not scared of heights, then that's a great job. But for me, fame, I don't think I have the mental space for fame. I don't kind of understand what it is anyone would be chasing. What are you lacking that makes you think fame is good? I honestly would have to talk to someone because I don't know the answer. So I think fame's dangerous. The ego is very dangerous. It's one of the most dangerous things in, in a human's life. So if your fame is driven by ego, then you are heading to a very dangerous place. If your fame has come about by being a fantastic person who's been yourself, been honest, but is happy to be recognised for it. You know, is fame being recognised for something you do or are you doing something to be recognised? Mm. It's, it's such a, a weird thing for me. But I, I remember in the 80s, we would kind of avoid any paparazzi. We'd go out of the back <laughs> of restaurants. I living in my Ray-Bans and my baseball cap because I didn't want to be photographed. And then there that came that really big change in the 90s where all of a sudden people were paying photographers to turn up at the restaurant as they leave there'd be I remember hearing a story where they would turn up to the restaurant and then just go home they've done the picture and it kind of started with them hello magazines and them you know when doing premieres and everyone's got to get the better dress I've got to be in the papers at the day after that premiere for wearing the best dress and it kind of escalated didn't it I mean Elizabeth Hurley wore that dress with the pins and everyone saw the press she got so girls were starting to think oh actually the more you show off your body you're more than likely to get in the paper if you go to a premiere wearing something the backless look and yeah that's nothing I've ever strived for and it's something that I think to keep that up would be hard work but if if you mentally prepared and you think you can handle it then fine but it's not something I relate to. Hannah we we disappoint quite a few people when they meet us. <laughs> I genuinely don't know why. <laughs> we love meeting people, talking to people, but we don't dress up for people. We don't live in that. We don't take on the persona of someone that is famous, you know. So when we, we initially meet people, it's like, oh, hi, how are you? Oh, you're, you're shorter than I thought you were. Mm. You know what I mean? And how are you supposed to deal with that? It's as if, you know, we're able to sort of like, you know, people are allowed to say that to us. Yes, they are. But yeah, it can actually hurt hurt our feelings. So when someone sees you on the screen, they've got an idea of what they think you are. But that's not true. That's not true. And I battled with that for years where I would meet somebody and I'd be introduced. And I can actually see this person looking at me thinking... But you're not, you don't look like that, what I think you should look like. Mm -mm. And then it takes maybe a first meeting, another meeting, and they realize, you know, you're actually quite nice. And it's like, so how am I supposed to be? You know, but I didn't blame them. It's just what they saw. Yeah. It's the illusion I gave. So 
we've actually disappointed quite a few people along the way. <laughs> we are normal girls who want normal things, who's had an opportunity and lived a life that anybody can pursue. We were fortunate to be in one of the biggest pop bands in the world. We went on to do our own stuff. But at the end of the day, our feet are firmly on the ground. And we know when to do the glitz and we know when not to do the glitz. It's not all the time. We just didn't have very big egos. But funny enough, talking about that, I mean, you've got Joan Collins, bless her, who is like 88 or so now. But Joan is of that era where she most probably wouldn't leave her house without full mm. hair done, dress on. And, and that would be responsibility. But she might thrive off that. That might give her such a boost. And maybe why she she's is. kept going yeah. for so long and still looks so glamorous. But I can't imagine me thinking, oh, I've got to put my hair on, got to, you know, look right. And, or maybe she couldn't go to a supermarket because she's Joan Collins. It's like because she's created that persona. So I always knew I was never going to create this persona of someone who lives another life to most people. Hmm. I find it quite tiring. It must be really tiring. Being in Wham, you know, we knew George and, George and Andrew was the boys in the front. We were the girls behind the boys and we had one of the best views ever. You know, it was our university being on stage with, with, with George and Andrew, you know, looking at the crowd, seeing how they worked the crowd. Despite being part of a band, we, still, we were still able to use our voices. We were never, ever shut down. So we still can use our opinions and everything. And, and I think that's a really, I feel really fortunate to be in that situation and still be able to be myself. And in fact, that's what George and Andrew wanted. He, they wanted us to be ourselves. How fortunate is that? Mm. Especially in the day and age of show business. So for us going along, we learned a lot from being amongst all that. And at the end of the day, it was always about us being who we truly were, staying happy, because we learned that from them, really. You know, especially... Well, I've always kind of thought we're very girl next door. Yeah. You know, that's how I would... If I would say, what would Pepsi... Yeah, we were like two neighbours. <laughs> <laughs> like, we're just going to you. I don't know. That's I felt like that's how we took everything. Like, just girl next door. So we've got this far. We've got an incredibly long way through this interview before we've mentioned George Michael. It would seem absolutely rude not to talk about him. Now you've brought him up. A lot of people have have had a lot to say about George Michael over the years and you knew him well. So I, I just wanted to know, what do you think his legacy has been? I think his legacy is a legacy of a man who did exactly what he wanted to do with his creativity and how it it crossed so many genres you know what i mean he could you know it wasn't a case of he was a pop star he was a musician he was a writer he was a producer and he he crossed so many genres of music so when i say genres i mean r&b soul you know jazz i mean it's it's quite amazing really and the thing is, even here in St. Lucia, on this beautiful Caribbean island, there are times I'm walking in the supermarket, George will come on the tannoy in the supermarket. And in St. Lucia, what tends to happen, if there's a song that a lot of people know, people start singing it in the supermarket. 
and it's quite normal. And you see the women, they're like doing their, their shopping and they're literally dancing at the, t- at the, at the till. Because it's actually really, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And there have been moments where I have been walking around the supermarket and Wake Me Up will come on. And it's like, oh, my gosh. And I would actually think that's George. There's been so many moments where, like, I don't know, it's maybe it's how I'm feeling at the time, and then a song of his will just come on. And then you hear everyone in the, sh- the shop start, start singing it. If it's, I, I mean, wish Tesco's was like that. Yeah, no, it's amazing. People are in, in a supermarket. The supermarkets in St. Lucia are absolutely hysterical. What I've come to realise, his legacy for me was that he... With his music especially, he crossed so many genres of music. And I don't think that's appreciated enough. I think that he, you know, not only white people love him, black people love him too. You know what I mean? And it's just so beautiful. And here it's just, if Careless Whisper comes on, oh my gosh. At the moment, there's a DJ on the radio. When he starts getting a bit, what we refer to, fresh, a bit fresh for some of the girls, and he gets starts getting a bit kind of... Um, flirtatious he plays careless whisper the actual the, the, the actual <laughs> the theme tune comes on and that's the love making kind of music <laughs> and it's actually really quite lovely and i love that about any musician that just crosses all those boundaries of music for me that's that's part of his legacy Maybe Shirley's got another part of his legacy. I don't know, but I love it. He had the most incredible voice. Lived for, absolutely lived for his music. With him, it wasn't like, oh, I want to be a singer so I can be famous and be rich. It was, I am that. This is me being who I am. And he couldn't help but write songs and, and, you know, being on tour with him. He never sang a bad note. It never went up key. It didn't happen. It was impossible. So to be given that voice, I mean, to this day, I've never heard another singer. You know, like you hear singers, you think, oh, it kind of sounds like that, that singer sounds like them. Or I've never heard another singer with his tone. He has such a unique, original tone in his voice that's like this velvet. It's so, I don't know, it just reaches your soul. And I just think... He's written songs that, you know, when you read what people say, oh, his album got me through. It was healing. His, his music is really healing for people because the words touch people. So mm. it's the intensity of his lyrics and the way, I mean, Praying for Time, I think the lyrics, every time I hear that, I still literally as if I'm listening to every single word he sings in Praying for Time because it, it's just... It's just so accurate, everything he said. Yeah, I fully agree with you there. I think Praying for Time is absolutely his best song. He he kept you off number one, didn't he, with, with Aretha Franklin, which is, again, another incredible song. But he didn't know. He rang me and was laughing his head off going, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I know. Why didn't you know you were releasing? I was going, well, I didn't know you were releasing your song. 
So he said, you'll always be number one in my heart. I have one more question for you. And I need to say, when I first started off as a journalist, as a junior reporter, one of the jobs you get is to go and visit couples that have been married for 50 or 60 or 70 years. One of the questions that you always get told to ask them is, what's the secret of a successful marriage? Now, I have you two. You two have been together for 40 years. And so I'm going to ask you my local journalist reporter question. What is the secret to a successful friendship? For me, I would say honesty, because that takes you a long, long way and makes you very, very comfortable. And I am very, very comfortable with Pepsi. Like, trust. You know, when you, you have... The honesty has created a really strong trust. And that, to me, is what the basis of our relationship is. Do you see what I mean? I mean, how can you not love that? (laughs) I mean, you know, her honesty. I would say she's one of the funniest people that I know. And she makes me laugh a lot. And she doesn't let me get away with much, which is very (laughs) good. And I think that if ever she gives, Shirley gives me criticism, it's only based upon the fact that she wants me to be my best. So it's with friendship, with any relationship, or, you know, to be with someone who wants you to be your best, I think, is is real key. And she does that. And I love her for that. Oh, what a lovely place to stop. Thank you both. <laughs> this has been terrific. It's all in black Thanks. and white in all good bookshops. Can I, can I ask you, are you doing your own audio books? Yes. Yes. That, to me, would be the best way. I always think somebody's words in somebody's own voice. Perfect. I know. We're going to do our best with that one. Standard Issue for All Women.